Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, but they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. With us on Great Minds today is a longtime friend. I've been privileged to uh, know Ken Sunshine. I guess, Ken, we met when you were chief of staff to Mayor Dinkin. So that was what, 88, 89? Yeah, 89, 90, yep. At that time, I was director of the Sports Commission. And there had just been an election from Mayor Koch to David Dinkins, who was the first black mayor ever elected in New York City's history. And um, I remember reading an article about you, Ken, and I said, this guy seems like he could be a guy who gets what we're trying to do. And the Sports Commission was all about, you know, keeping what we had, professional, amateur, collegiate, and bidding to bring new events into New York City. And I got to you, I don't remember how, and you gave me a you know warm reception. And I literally remember in City Hall, you physically could not get to the mayor's office without getting through you. Yeah, well, it was, you know, I, I had had a background in the New York political world for many years and uh, a, basically a decade in the entertainment business where I learned PR and made a lot of comments, uh, uh, contacts in, in that world. And I was ready to form my own firm, but I have always had a foot in New York politics. And uh, I would, David Dinkins and his uh, campaign manager, who was one of my best friends, Bill Lynch, came to me and they said, quote, unquote, Kenny, we need a white boy who's crazy enough to say no to the brothers. Bill's going to be the good cop. We want you to be the bad cop. We want you to run uh, the Dinkins campaign for mayor. I left everything, spent basically a year at Bill Lynch's side running the campaign. Good morning, I'm Gabe Pressman. This is a moment many New Yorkers have been waiting for, a face-to-face -face encounter between the Republican and Democratic candidates for mayor of New York, their second and last debate of this campaign. Democrat David Dinkins, Republican liberal Rudolph Giuliani, and right-to-life party candidate Henry Hughes, here today at the insistence of Mr. Dinkins. Mr. Dinkins says he favors the politics of inclusion. And then when we won, barely beat Rudy Giuliani, uh, uh, I was set to start my firm, and Dinkins and Lynch said, no, 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 you got to give us a year. We trust you. Everybody knows you. You'll be the chief of staff. I didn't even know what it meant. I thought I was, like, you know, going to do time cards or something and, you know, health benefits. And I said, that's not for me. No, 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 this is where... And basically, I was in charge of him. Today, we travel another mile on Freedom's Road. It is a giant step for us, but is only one of the many now being taken around the world. So we gather here in the fresh chill of a new year to begin a new administration to enter a new decade and to welcome a new birth of liberty which has steadily been expanding in our own land and which has suddenly exploded in so many other nations that once seemed so permanently gripped in an iron tyranny.
Who thought or predicted that in 1989, or even in this century, or even in our lifetime, we could hear freedom ring from Berlin to Bucharest, from Prague to Budapest, and all the way to the walls of the Kremlin itself. Human rights is the most powerful idea in human history. And now we know, and yes, we don't hope, we know that someday soon, the bells of freedom will also ring in Tiananmen Square and in Soweto. He was very clear that your desk would literally be blocking the door to the mayor's office and uh, everybody had to know they had to go through you. So I stayed about a year and a half when I did form my own firm, but I stayed very close to Dinkins. I pledged him I would help run his reelection campaign, which I did, which we lost barely to Giuliani. Uh, but by then I had, you know, been embarking in a, in an entrepreneurial career and here we are. So now we're in 2020, uh, strange times to say the least. And, uh, I think it's a fair statement, not an overblown statement to say that in the United States, you are the preeminent PR guy in the game. It didn't uh, start that way. Tell us, ab- tell us about your first gig at a college. Well, I mean, by the way, that's, I think, I love you, Matt, but I don't know. I, I, that's, 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 it seems a little much, but, uh, but thank you. Um, I, my first gig, I was an activist. I went to Cornell, and I was one of those student activists in the heart of the anti-Vietnam War era, the civil rights era, and I got caught right in the middle of it. The number one complaint of many Americans in 1969 was the war in Vietnam. So they got together. They got together in a haphazard, slipshod way, but their numbers grew. 10,000, 50, 100,000, and twice more. They got together to demonstrate against the war. They called their get-together a moratorium. And spent lots of times protesting and going to Washington and being involved in sort of the, I guess, the left spectrum of democratic politics, capital D. Um, and I, I graduated. The classes were canceled half the time. It was, a, you know, it was quite a, a tumultuous time. And, and I started as a community organizer in Long Island, and my mother worked in a community center in Freeport. Hmm. And that's, that was my first gig right out of college. And what happened is I... Um, I was working, you know, with, with, with kids, it was some gangs that were around then. But I always sort of had this little foot in the in the political realm, and I got recruited out of nowhere. They said, you know, we, I think I did an interview on TV. Somebody saw me. Said, you should run. We're forming a slate for George McGovern, the peace candidate against the Democratic establishment, and you'd be good to run. And I, I remember saying I could tell tales out of school now. I said, you know, I don't really even live on Long Island anymore. You know, I was living in, in the in the city in Manhattan. I said, that ah, doesn't matter. You know, you vote there, you can run there. And I ran on the slate and we won despite me and in getting into fights with people all the time. And I became a delegate to the nineteen seventy two Democratic Convention. That was the Watergate Convention and we thought we were taking over the world was wonderful, except I lost 49 out of 50 states. And I said, well, what the hell happened here? We really thought we were going to... I mean, I, at 
and toward the end, I knew it was likely we would not win. But then I started bouncing around the political world of New York and uh, worked for a host of uh, sort of legendary characters. Uh, this is in the 70s. Um, Bell Abzug was probably the main person, and I worked for her for a couple of years, and uh, we were pretty close. I had a very odd relationship. She was a legendary congresswoman, wore big hats, was loud. Women have to be at every place where decisions of life and death are made about women, whether it's around the negotiating peace tables, whether it's at the trade tables or at union tables, or whether it's at the tables in our own kitchens. We have to be where decisions are made. And one of the leaders of the of the burgeoning uh, feminist uh, world, and I got to meet Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and people like that. But I also met a lot of politicians, and Bella lost a lot of campaigns, but almost won some of them. And I then I bounced. Uh, I, I worked for Jimmy Carter, uh, who became president, but I didn't want to go to Washington and take a job there. And then I actually, a couple of years later, I worked against Jimmy Carter for Ted Kennedy, who I got to know pretty well and just loved. And got to sort of meet the Kennedy family around that time. And Kennedy made that great speech at Madison Square Garden at the convention, the dream shall never die. The work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. Basically conceding to Carter, and, uh, you know, and Carter got beaten badly by Ronald Reagan, which I think was the beginning of my world, bad things happening governmentally. And I said, this, I don't want to be in politics anymore. And I, uh, I started, I, I went into the entertainment business with no training, no real contacts. I, I was actually a journalist briefly at a, a Record World magazine, uh, one of the trades in that time. And then I got to work as like a junior publicist at ASCAP, where I stayed employed for much of the 80s with leaves of absence for all kinds of things like like when Live Aid, the original Live Aid came, I basically volunteered, and then I ended up running the PR for all of it, the American version in Philadelphia, the British version. It was, it was London and Philadelphia. And that was, uh, that was Queen's legendary performance, wasn't it? It was. It was. I actually have one story that is, um, you know, there was no, you know, it was very primitive satellite communications. This is 1985, and... The word came from London that the Queen stole the show in, in London. And I guess I heard it or something. I can't remember exactly how I knew that. And I, and I did an interview and I made, I said, my God, Queen's performance was extraordinary. So, you know, we did the American version, and we had, you know, the Rolling Stones with different groups. It was Tina Turner and Mick Jagger doing a set, and Bob Dylan and Keith Richards and Ron Wood did another set, and Madonna did a set. It was an amazing concert, and it was all for a cause, USA for Africa, because, you know, there was famine in Africa. And then I went back to my job at ASCAP. Out of the blue, I get a call from Freddie Mercury, who said, Oh, you made nice comment on us. I'm coming to New York. Would you like to meet? So I remember met him at the Plaza Hotel. And I think he tried to hire us, but I was working at ASCAP. So I, it didn't work out. But, you know, now, of course, the Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie, you know, 
highlights, you know, the genius of Freddie Mercury. People ask me about that all the time. In that era, I worked on a lot of the cause events, Amnesty International tour, uh, and uh, but that was before I, you know, was solicited by David Dinkins and Bill Lynch to help run Dinkins' campaign. And lo and behold, we won barely, and then became his first chief of staff. And there were some tough times. I was I worked for Mayor Dinkins as well, and when worked, you know, for you. And there were some tough times in racial politics in New York in that era. And you must have been on the front lines of a lot of that stuff. Yeah, it was a very rough area, era. It, it's, it, you know, New York, it's almost like it was, I'm talking about Mars. And you look at New York now, um, crime was omnipresent. And, and it was the crack epidemic and people getting mugged all the time. It was the economy was terrible. Uh, there were unemployed uh, people who were pretty desperate. I mean, Times Square was, you know, I'm kind of a brazen, you know, arrogant New Yorker. And I go anywhere. Nobody's going to bother me. Even I didn't walk on the deuce you know, on 42nd Street. You go there now and it's how many years later? It's like Disney World. And, you know, some of us hard ass New Yorkers think it got overly sanitized. You know, there's something between dangerous and uh, and, and 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 barren to being a theme park um, without the grit and the uniqueness of New York. But it's a different discussion. It was, it was a tough time in New York's history. First black mayor had a lot of problems, uh, you know, just because he was the first black mayor. Um, and there were some highly charged racial incidents that uh, you couldn't handle well. Uh, I think the police department, I think the police department was very different then. Uh, and it was, uh, they did some things, I think, that exacerbated the racial tensions in New York. I was right in the middle of that. And, uh, you know, I think David Dinkins was arguably the most underrated politician in history. He's one of, you know, decency as a person and positive image is something I think is very important, particularly in the era of Donald Trump. Um, but he never really got credit for starting the uh, crime wave reduction and for picking up the economy of New York. And, you know, Giuliani followed him and got and took a lot of credit for it. It really all started under Dinkins. And uh, he's 93 years old and he's one of the, I'm, I remain very close to him. And one of the privileges of having been me for all the years is meeting some extraordinary people. And he's at the top of the list. Talk about, I know, one of the highlights of that era was when Nelson Mandela came to New York and came to Yankee Stadium. And I think you played a an, uh, a little instrumental role that few in history know about. I am a Yankee. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, in, in, in my highlights. So it, it, Nelson Mandela was... Uh, released from prison in South Africa, 27 years, one of the extraordinary figures ever. And Harry Belafonte, the the performer and civil rights activist, I had gotten pretty close to him, uh, and he had been he was then designated by the ANC, the African National Congress, to coordinate Mandela's visit to America. And uh, Bill Lynch, you know, Deputy Mayor Bill Lynch, my friend, and Harry and 
myself and a few other people start planning the trip. And um, the first stop was going to be New York. And uh, we did a ticker tape parade up Broadway. And it was just literally millions of people. And what a celebration of a, of a true hero and, a, and, frankly, a political statement. He, he, he and his wife stayed at Gracie Mansion. And um, we did all these events. And the, the, the highlight was a Yankee Stadium concert uh, with uh, prominent, mostly South African musicians, African musicians, and some Americans. And uh, I had one incident people uh, like uh, that I remember is uh, he, he, he was very playful. He was a tough guy and physically tough, too, obviously mentally very tough. But he was kind of playful, and he, he liked my name, you know, having the name Sunshine. And he would say, Sunshine, you're the PR guy. Give me some ideas. So at Yankee Stadium, he's about to go on, and you know it was like seventy thousand people roaring, and and the highlight of seeing him perform. I said, "Well, uh, Mr. Mandela, he wasn't yet president of Mandela." I said, "Here's a Yankee hat. Why don't you wear the hat? It's visual. It'll, you know, you're at Yankee Stadium, the most iconic sports brand of the world. So, oh, good idea." And he, he took it up to him. And I was when he walked to the stage, and we were in the dugout. Actually, I could see he wasn't wearing the hat, so. Um, Bill Lynch said to me, uh, oh, great idea. He's not even wearing the damn hat. So I said, well, what can I say? And we get on the, he gets on the stage and he, he, he says, uh, you know, it's so great to be here. I am a Yankee. He takes the hat out of his pocket, puts it on his head and wore it during the whole speech and place went crazy. And, when when he finished, he you know, we get to the dugout and he calls me over and he says, uh, uh, "You're the PR guy, but but you got to remember it's the visual that matters. Meaning the act of putting the hat on is greater for TV than if you're wearing wearing the hat the whole time." And huh. you know, <laughs> people can call me a PR genius. He was a, the master, and right. uh, we kidded about that. Um, you know, for many years. And I got to know him a bit. He, when he was president, he would come to the UN and invite me. And uh, he he had a, it's interesting when you get to know, you know, very, very famous people or very public people, it's the human side that, you know, I think I've had some uh, experience in that you just don't see. And um, they're, they're all human beings. They're all flawed and they're all um, needy, and uh, same with celebrities that I've worked with over the years. But the role I've been playing a long time is the behind-the-scenes role, which I'm more than happy to do. And um, and it's, in a way, it's easier, especially today, where being famous is not necessarily such a great thing. Well, a lot of, a lot of people write books who probably do it just on ego and don't have all that much to say. Knowing you, you won't write a book, but you're one who probably should. You know, I, people ask me that all the time, and I, I get all these offers, you know, book agents, and, and you know, for a considerable amount of money, which uh, they say, you, you know, you know you wouldn't keep it, you should donate it to a charity. It's just not my role. You know, right, I'm, right. I'm trying to write a little bit for my kids just because they don't know these stories, and I'm forgetting a lot of these stories, but I'll ne- I'm never going to publish my book Um you know, it's just not my role. And frankly, I hate when people have the privilege of being close to 
famous people. And then they write a book and make money on it. It's it's pretty crass. It goes on all the time, but it's not not what I'm going to do. Yeah, no, I think I think that that's very much in character. So now we're at about 1991, 92, and you open, I guess, what initially was called Ken Sunshine Consultants. Yeah, it was a, um, a flourishing firm with a guy with a reputation in the political and the entertainment world. And I opened it up and I had a staff of one, me. And uh, I remember Mayor Dinkins said, and like it was my last day, and he said, well, who are you going to be your clients? And I said, well, I don't know. I'll figure it out. I really didn't know. There was no great business plan for this. So he says, I'll make you a deal. You you get a big entertainment client. I'll, I'll, I'll help get you a political client. So I went into my desk that I had been packing up because I was leaving to start this firm with no clients. And I co-called Barbara Streisand, who I actually knew through the political world. And we had some mutual friends that I was close to. But I just co-called her, really. She picked up the phone and she said, what do you want? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm starting my firm and, and it's going to be different. And we're going to be smart PR people. And I want you to be my first client. She said, you're, you're doing PR? You're much too smart to do PR. I said, Barbara, I'm going to be the smart PR person. People say that to me all the time. So she became our first client. And um, so I went back to Mayor Dinkins and he said, uh, you got Barbara Streisand? Are you, she's the biggest star in the world. I love her. Start singing songs. I said, yeah, but Mr. Mayor, you have to fulfill your role. He picks up the phone and calls Bill Clinton, who was running for president, and he gets Clinton on the phone. He says, you know, you've got to do a solid for my guy. He says, oh, I love Kenny. Come, have him just show up at the campaign office, and I ended up doing the uh, PR for the Democratic Convention that nominated him at Madison Square Garden. And uh, those were the first two clients, and then, you know, we started growing, and I hired a couple of people, and from a staff of zero in 92, um, we're now about 210, 220 people with offices around the country, and we have a unique brand and a unique way of looking at the world of PR, and we do a whole lot more than, than PR. And so the business has grown tremendously, and sti- but still grounded pretty solidly in a hybrid of sort of entertainment and politics. Yeah, it's not. We're it's complicated. We're not actually a overtly political firm. I mean, I I make no bones about my personal politics, and a lot of people in the firm, you know, agree with that and are active that way. We represent a lot of nonprofits, a lot of advocacy groups. Uh, we do a lot of work in the environmental world, in the uh, in, in the uh, feminist world. Uh, we represent a bunch of civil rights organizations, uh, and, uh, and and the LBG, LBGT advocacy groups. Uh, that's kind of the soul of who we are. And then we do some businesses, and probably half of what we do has something to do with entertainment. We're best known for some of the celebrities we represent, but that's actually a small part of the business. I, I did, look, I've, obviously it's almost 30 years of existence. Uh, yeah, I've done some things right. I've done some things wrong. And, you know, building a business from scratch and the reality of payroll and and the kind of things that and people that know me, I'm pretty good at some things, maybe I'm certainly not good at managing things. And at the beginning, I was kind of doing everything and thank God that started. But one of the, the smartest things I, I did, I had, I had a pretty good eye for smart young people who would like my brand. And, um, you know, 
thank God they run the firm, you know, and and, uh, and they're, you know, we have we're like a wonderfully dysfunctional family. Uh, and uh, my two part, my uh, three partners, uh, Sean Sachs and Heather Lilas and Keely Thomas Morgan in L.A. Uh, are, you know, whatever good legacy I started, they're carrying it through. And, you know, we're now a big company, but a unique company. Yeah, well, I think you've never lost that that feel of a owner operated business. Yeah, part of it is also for me personally. It's I, I, I somebody's got to find me a hobby one day. I don't have any hobby. My hobby is politics, I guess. And you know, I, you know, people like me. You know, they play golf. They travel a lot. They you know, enjoy the fruits of their labor. I'm never happier than when I'm sitting in my desk. You know, I'm on five nonprofit boards. I'm a trustee of the City University of New York CUNY. I'm on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and a bunch of um, uh, advocacy for poor people to groups like that. I spend some time doing that. I'm still active politically. Most of my time, I'm still doing, you know, work at Sunshine Sachs. And it's it's worked out, I think, pretty well in a very tough and very competitive business. So I, I remember that scene, and I know you were one of the first people that uh, Lynn manuel Miranda went to see when he was coming up with Hamilton. Uh, but I remember there was a very memorable scene in there uh, where Madison, Jefferson, and Hamilton are all together, and they called it, you know, the room where it happened, uh, where they basically made the deal to move the White House, keep the White House in the South, and to set up the financial system that Hamilton fought so fiercely for. You have been in a lot of rooms where it happened, where there weren't a lot of people in there. When you look back on the last, you know, 30-some-odd years what comes to mind, uh, you know, and it could be something pop culture I know you were there uh, running everything for Michael Jackson's funeral. Um, that was one that comes to mind, having spent some time with you. But you've been in a lot of rooms where it happened. What comes to mind? Well, you mentioned <clears throat> Lin-Manuel. I mean, you know, there are, in the celebrity world, you know, we have some pretty extraordinary, legendary celebrities. Streisand was the first client we had. We've represented Leonardo DiCaprio for 23 years. We, we've had a pretty stellar roster and many, many more like that. There aren't too many, you know, but they were, we, we started with Leo right after Titanic. So he was already a big star. Um, Barbara was legendary before she even met me. Um, but I have a, a friend from the political world of New York, uh, Luis Miranda, who's just a smart, wonderful guy. I got to know him and his wife. And um, from the Bronx, he was now from uh, from uh, Washington Heights. And uh, Washington Heights. And, uh, but he was you know, one of the leading political consultants in New York. We worked together on some campaigns, worked against each other on campaigns. And apparently, and the truth is, I don't totally remember this. Apparently, many years ago, he said, look, I have a son who's in high school, and he's very talented, but we don't know anybody in the in show business. You're the only one we know. Would you talk to him? 
So apparently I was nice to him. I don't totally remember talking to him in high school. Um, I do remember talking to him in college where he was at Wesleyan. He was writing a show uh, called In the Heights. His name is Lin-Manuel Miranda. And he was, I mean, he's, you know, just an extraordinary person, but you kind of get a sense of somebody that there's something special there. Lights up on Washington Heights up at the dawning. I wipe down the awning. Hey, y'all, good morning. I am Scotty, and you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated, exacerbated by the fact that my syntax is highly complicated because I immigrated from the single greatest little place in the Caribbean, Dominican Republic. I love it. Jeez, I'm jealous of it and beyond. And he was very inquisitive about the business end of the entertainment business. And, and In the Heights was written in college. And when he got out of college, he, he, uh, apparently I was at the first reading or, uh, of, his, uh, of his play. And then he workshopped it and it went off Broadway. And I was at the first performance. He became a client. Um, and uh, In the Heights ended up going to Broadway. He wins the Tony. And, and he's charming everybody and he's also extraordinarily talented and he has this idea of uh, a hip-hop musical about alexander hamilton and he imitates me i kind of roll in my eyes great idea Lynn. you know hip-hop music about alexander hamilton so you take it further i think i had gotten a call from the white house michelle obama's office to um there was a, a poetry slam at the white house and Lynn ended up performing the first song, Alexander Hamilton, to piano at the White House, and the Obamas, like, stopped the show. Who is this kid? Um, I'm thrilled uh, the White House called me uh, tonight uh, because uh, I'm actually working on a hip-hop album. Uh, it's a concept album about the life of someone I think embodies hip-hop, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. Um, he, was, uh, he was born uh, a penniless orphan uh, in St. Croix of illegitimate birth, um, became George Washington's right-hand man, uh, became Treasury Secretary, caught beef with every other founding father, uh, and all on the strength of his writing. I think he embodies uh, the word's ability to make a difference. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be doing the first song from that tonight. I'm accompanied by Tony and Grammy-winning music director Alex Lacamoire. Uh, anything you need to know, I'll be playing uh, Vice President Aaron Burr, uh, and snap along if you like. <laughs> How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle? And of you know, it took a couple of years later to write the rest of it, and people remember uh, now. Nobody in the world doesn't know Hamilton and the. And the genius of Lin Manuel Miranda, and uh, and what's and there are many extraordinary things about him, but the way he's handled success, and this is mega success, is very unique. I mean, success makes people crazy, and it, or it makes them jerks or <clears throat> arrogant. <clears throat> Lin is exactly the same as when I I met him in high school, and. Um, it's got this extraordinary family. You know, it's, it's like the family of the century. And, uh, you know, he's 40 years old, and he's probably got 20 other projects that he'll be, that'll be acclaimed in the next couple of years. He's directing his first movie now, and, you know, that's, 
a joy to have had that level of relationship from the very beginning. I don't, there aren't too many of the celebrities who've been from the very beginning. Tyler Perry is one of them. Um, when he was, he was doing these plays, um, you know, and, and, uh, it was probably just known in a segment of the African American community. And then he did his first Medea movie. We worked on it and we've been working with him ever since. Uh, I guess when you're there from the beginning, there's something, uh, special, but, uh, you know, we, we try to pick and choose who we work with. We actually say no to clients all the time. Uh, which I don't think is too common. And, yeah, we also try not to take some of this as quite as seriously as others do because some perspective is often uh, often helpful. So doing what you do, working with, you know, such high-profile celebrities, from music, from film, from theater, television, there must have been a couple of times where you've gotten a phone call late at night and it was a oh boy situation. Are there any of those that you could share with us? Uh, no, <laughs> there's, I mean, those are the kind of things. And I guess maybe one of the things that um, is, is different about us. I don't know that the only ones like this is I never talk about um, anything our clients might not want anybody yeah, to know yeah, about even yeah. if it's just funny and in, and incidental i i just it's just i i almost the, the barrier goes up and i just uh, don't do it i mean look i've gotten calls four in the morning five in the morning six in the morning and sometimes it's nothing and sometimes it's a big deal and uh to be totally frank and this is part of the art of what we do is we try to make it go away and nobody knows about it and um, and sometimes the press doesn't know about it. And if the press knows about it, we try to make it not worth their writing about it. Um, it, it was different when when the world was different before digital media. I, I think I, I say this all the time, to be totally honest. People like me are, were a lot more powerful when there were newspapers that mattered with deadlines I mean, newspapers matter more than ever now, but not this kind of stuff because it'll get on the internet or it'll be on, you know, the digital version of, of newspapers. And you don't have any time to frankly kill a story or to temper a story. And it, it was, it, it's, it's a very different game uh, right now. I know it's different. Has it made your job harder or easier? You know, different. It's, it's hard to say. It was, it was always hard and dealing you know, especially crisis PR when you're dealing, you know, it could, it could really, you can ruin somebody's career. You, you can ruin somebody's marriage. You can do some, you know, if we're, we're, you're privileged to be in on, on things that you don't, that your client or the potential client doesn't want the world to know. That's a lot of trust. And you're hopefully going to, um, make it go away. Frankly, making it go away is, is harder these days. Um, but I don't know. It's it's just different. Look, I, I grew up, I tell the story of the kids that work for me and our kids, you know, and I started, I would personally hand deliver press releases. 
Why? Because it was the only way to get a press release out. You could mail it, I guess, but that would get there a couple of days later. So I would literally have my press releases, and I'd go right into the New York Times. There was no security. You'd go into the newsroom. People always say, how did you meet all these reporters? And they that's the way I started doing it. You would just go, and I'd go to the Daily News, and I'd go to Channel 2, and I'd go to NBC. And you got to know people that way. And uh, a couple of years later, this wonderful invention happened, the fax machine. So you could fax it. Now, and people now look at me, they don't even know what a fax machine is. I remember I used to get ink all over my hands, uh, the early versions of it. And uh, But it's like I'm talking about, you know, the Civil War. We're talking about, uh, um, you know, the way the media business has is, is changed. And now, obviously, everything is digital. It used to be, you know, the social media. Everything's social media now. And the uh, ways of communicating are so different and uh, you know we do a lot of work in the film and TV world well you know streaming and the way people uh, get content and, and the way content is disseminated is, is totally changed but um, you know in, in the end I always say that there are certain skill sets that are always the same no matter what the form of communication and when I sometimes give pep talks to my staff or you know, some, I do these guest lectures all the time or talk to people. It's, it, it's, it's still the ability to communicate, the ability to be concise and to be, uh, and to be, and to attract interest in your client or what you're trying to promote. The ability to say it in fewer words. Nobody ever had attention span, certainly not these days. And to the extent you can, and this is harder these days, to meet people, develop real real relationships. Um, and we always say from our end, the press is not the enemy. You know, you need the press. And you look, nobody fights harder with press or with anybody on behalf of clients than I do. But I'm going to need them tomorrow. And this, you know, tough guy uh, press, you know, to, to, oh, I'm fighting for you and ruin relationships doesn't do the client any good and sure doesn't do you any good. A couple stories, because uh, for better or worse, we know each other a long time and, and know a little bit too much. Let me just throw out a couple. I'd love for you to tell just a couple of my favorite Ken Sunshine stories. Tell us about Bubbles the Monkey. Oh, Jesus. Well, I, uh, I he, he was never an actual client, but I did some work with Michael Jackson who, and he was the biggest star in the world in this era, and uh, I uh, and he invited me to lunch with his then manager um, Frank DeLeo, who passed a couple of years ago. And I remember it was at the fancy restaurant on the East Side, and I walk in, and I didn't exactly look, wasn't dressed appropriately, but the snooty maitre D let me in. Oh, you're with him, and get ushered in the back of the restaurant. It wasn't a private room, but it was the back of the restaurant. And I said, you know, hello, Mike. And I said hello to Frank DeLeo. And uh, DeLeo was smoking a cigar in the restaurant. You could smoke then, but he kind of looked like a tough guy. And Michael said, you haven't said hello to everybody at the table. And I looked to my right, and there's a monkey. And his name was Bubbles. Now, there is a celebrity sitting in our audience. (laughs) I didn't get a chance to do the introduction. I was saying, 
There's a celebrity in our audience here that's getting the full superstar treatment. He goes in the side entrances, the hotels, hideouts from the teenage girls because they smother him with kisses. He is Michael Jackson's favorite companion. And the so without missing a beat, I... Oh, hi, Bubbles, how are you? Do you like your banana? Do you like New York? I saw you in L.A. I start having a, you know, dialogue or monologue with Bubbles, and Michael loved that, and um, the people would have to greet Bubbles as it was. But this is in a restaurant, and I'm talking to a monkey, and, and I remember saying, how, how am I going <laughs> to tell my mother what I really do? You know, this is, Right. I, I guess I guess there's a metaphor there yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And give us uh, w- one more story before we wrap up. Uh, I believe there was an incident, which I think you can talk about. We talked about it on stage in Australia with uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. and Barbara Streisand. <sighs> Jesus. Um, well, when John started his magazine, um, uh, George Magazine, uh he, uh, it, 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 Barbara, he wanted Barbara to be the first cover. She, we didn't get it together to be the first cover, but she was like the third cover. And we went out to, um, to, uh, she agreed to do the cover, to do the photo shoot at her place in Malibu. And I remember John and I drive, John was a good friend of mine. We drove up and, uh, he, um, it was really hot that day. He said, who are all these people around? You know, there's makeup people, lighting people. So I have to do one shot. And it took hours before we even took a, a shot. And she was dressed as Bess- Betsy Ross because, you know, celebrities are dressed as historical characters. So he's wandering the other end of the property. And he um, and he says, uh, oh, let's go in the pool. I said, oh, John, you can't go in the pool. She's clearly my biggest client. I'm supposed to be with her. And, oh, come on. We both jump in the pool, all of a sudden we hear a blood-curdling scream, who the hell is in my swimming pool? And Barbara dresses Betsy Ross and hair people, makeup people, they're all charging to find the uh, people in her pool. And I remember the flash saying, oh my God, she's got these ex-Mossad security people who you know, would kill on a, on a dime. I'm going to be found murdered, shot to death naked in a swimming pool with John F. Kennedy Jr., what would my mother think? And uh, she got there and said, Kenny, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be with me. You're swimming. And she sees John. She says, oh, John, how's the water? And we would laugh. We would <laughs> laugh about that for years. Oh, and my. John was just a wonderful guy. He you know, died tragically years ago in a plane crash. Um, he was a special, special person. Yeah, great stories. So on Great Minds, I love to ask all of our guests, either you know going back to your you know formative years and youth, or right up till today, who are the great minds that you look to? Who really has influenced you? Well, you know, I, I won't. I'm going to only talk about people that I actually knew. I mean, they're obviously you know, legendary people who I've, you know, whose books I've read or I met slightly, but I, uh, I, there are a couple of people. Um, yeah, Norman Lear, the, uh, the, the legendary Hollywood producer, all in the family and all that. He's 97 years young now. I talk to him with some frequency. He's sharper than I am and active being a producer Whenever, you know, people say, you know, you're kind of getting a little old to be doing what you're doing. I said, getting old. 
I talked to Norman Lear. He's got four gigs, and he's yelling at me for not doing more political stuff. And he's 97. He's just, just the best. Um, the songwriting couple, Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who are legendary songwriters and won many Oscars for The Way We Were and The Windmills of Your Mind, uh, they're among my my friends and mentors, and uh, they're just special. And they're 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 the way I actually got to meet uh, and get to know so well uh, uh, Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand's manager of almost sixty years. His name is Marty Ehrlichman. Talk about a legend. He's been with her from the very beginning of her career, with a little break, uh, uh, maybe midway. Um, and he's truly, he's the best of old school, tough guy, smart as can be, still makes all the business deals. He's 91 and sharp as could be. Um, but I just love going out drinking with him and, and he, and man, he can drink. I'm not the biggest drinker. I'm a frequent, but not a big drinker. Mm. And, uh, he, right. I just, shared those are and they all the people i've mentioned are all in their 90s and um you know it's just special to have that kind of relationship on the entertainment side i mean i you know i love all my clients harry belafani is probably again in his 90s uh it's just a special relationship with him i've known him for a really long time he says I make him laugh more than anybody, and he sure makes me laugh. Uh, I mean, I talk to him all the time and see him, and he's truly one of the one of the civil rights giants, one of the absolutely legendary figures in entertainment. Um, and there are others, but those are among the people I would say off the top. That's of my head. that that that's a pity, good group. Okay, just to wind up with all that's going on now, all we see in politics, all we see in culture. Uh, all the challenges we have around climate and and really, really tough, tough issues. When you wake up in the morning, optimistic or pessimistic? You know, it's interesting. People often, and I deal with the most cynical politicians all the time. Then I deal with entertainment types who have a different perspective. People often tell me, how do you stay so optimistic? Why are you so upbeat? Why, why are you upbeat about working so hard now when you, you don't have to work this hard. And I don't know. It's part of my, it keeps me going. It's my disposition. The truth is, truth is beneath that, I'm fearful. I mean, I, I hate much of what's going on in the body politic, not only in America. Obviously, I, you know, nothing, I have nothing good to say about our current president, and I used to know him a bit, and um, I hope he doesn't get reelected. But it's going on similar trend in, in, in much of certainly the Western world, in Europe, uh, we see similar trends uh, with so many issues of climate change and, and poverty and the gap between the rich and the poor and on and on to be electing people that bring out the worst in our body politic. It, it makes me grieve for the future of this country. I, um, you know, I hate what's happened to much of the media. Um, uh, you know, that media becomes almost a propaganda the form of, of communication from people in power. Um, but I couldn't be prouder of, of much of the rest of the media. Investigative journalism still lives. I wish people would pay, get paid more for it. I wish there were more investigative journalists. But that must be preserved. But I fear for 
you know, what's happening in journalism, what's going to happen in journalism. And obviously I've made a pretty good career out of working with, uh, with journalists. Um, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with the world of culture and art. You know, deep down, I'm a bit of a cultural snob, I guess, even though I make at least part of my living in, in mainstream pop culture. Um, you know, I wish classical musicians got paid more. I wish it was more great jazz and people got paid for it. Um, those are great art forms that are almost disappearing. You know, you go to uh, concerts, uh, classical musical concerts, and I'm the youngest person there. That, that There's something wrong with that. Um, I could go on and on. Um, I, but I remain optimistic. Uh, there are so many good things about young people. There are so many things about young people that drive me crazy, including my own kids and including many of the people that work for me. But, you know, I'm sure I know I drove people crazy when I was young and brash and had too many opinions about things. Uh, uh, and I think, look, I think politically we're going through a terrible period now. I think it's going to change and we'll have better people in office and you know, we'll bring out the better in America. One of the great things about our country is our diversity and our diversity of opinion and our and and promoting dissent and promoting artistic expression. That's almost like talking about the enemy to a good chunk of American and a chunk of American media now. I want that to come back, and I think it will. Um, so, in the end, I remain an optimist, but boy, it's a tough period these days to be an optimist. Well, I know for a guy who's been at it a long time, you know, most people who are in the position you all would be winding down. But in so many ways, knowing you, it still feels to me like your best days are ahead and that in many ways, Ken Sunshine is just getting started. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. I, you know, I love talking to you and gossiping and saying things we're not allowed to say on your podcast, but uh, you're you're a special guy. We've known each other for so long and I couldn't be prouder of your success. And who knew you had to do podcasts? I mean, it's unbelievable. Listen, this is what this is what we got now. All right, take care, Ken. Thanks, Stay healthy. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.